When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even, checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Welcome to this podcast number 800. That's insane. It is insane. That's 800 episodes. That's a lot of podcasts. It is. Now a lot of people are like, why didn't you why didn't you do some crazy retrospective for the 800th episode? Nah, we don't have time. Because when you've done 800 episodes, <laughs> the numbers start to just become a blur of numbers. Well, it just creeps up on you before you realize, like, I'm not really paying attention. I know this sounds terrible. I haven't been really paying attention to the numbers. And then all of a sudden, like, oh, shit, it's 800. Oh, maybe we should have. But it doesn't matter because Kyle, yeah. Judd Apatow this episode. Woo! Which, uh, don't act like you didn't know. Uh, was, he was just here. I know. He was just We just recorded he's this. He's the coolest man. He's fantastic. And not only that, he's doing a show at the Balboa Theater in San Diego, Judd Apatow and Friends, this Thursday. Uh, Dimitri Martin's going to be on the show. Jimmy Carr is going to be on the show. We That's don't get a lot of Jimmy show. Carr in the United no, States. we need more Jimmy Carr. We need more coming over from... His panel show is one of my new favorite things in the world. I've just discovered it. Which, which the, one? The Eight out of ten one. cats? The, no, the new one that he's doing that just hit Netflix. Oh, gotcha. Uh, I just saw that had Jimmy Carr started watching. I'm like, oh, it's a panel show, not a stand-up thing. And four hours went by. Yeah, yeah. Jim, Jimmy's fantastic. I've uh, been on the podcast a couple of years ago, and uh, he's going to be on this show at the uh, Balboa Theater in San Diego Thursday, two days from now on the 21st, from when this is going up. So if you go to sandiegotheaters.org, click calendar, you'll get the show. Uh, or you just Google uh, Apatow uh, Balboa Theater San Diego April 21st. Yeah. You can get a California burrito and then go watch Jet Apatow, and that's a good day. It's April 21st. <laughs> Everybody know today is Earth Day. No, it's not. It's April 22nd. Yeah, April 22nd. How did, is they give, how did that swing by them? How did they get by that in the song? Yeah, it's kind of bullshit. That makes me real mad. I don't know what song you're referencing. You don't know the Earth Day song? K Rock used to play the shit out of it who, all the time. Who does this song? It's Dramarama. Oh, really? Yeah, Dramarama. I would, I would expect more out what of Dramarama. What are we going to do? That's unacceptable. What are we going to do? Oh, no. Yep. Is that the same period where K-Rock's playing the Smash Mouth cover of Why Can't We Be Friends? <laughs> Why can't we yeah, be that's friends? Because <laughs> you might as well be walking on the sun. Same album. Yeah. You can just say, might as well be walking on the sun. You can drop that after any... Um, song chorus. I like to say it just casually, like in the midst of a conversation, just see if anybody flinches or catches it. Yeah. It's my kind of conversational terrorism. Penny Lane is in my ears and in my eyes. You might as well be walking on the sun. So that'll be your new favorite thing. There we go. Uh, uh, Before we get into the podcast with Mr. Apatow, 
Anything on the Nerdist Community Cork Board that you'd like to share? I got one that's right up your alley. It's for Andrew Pearson. He's an improv comic from Des Moines, Iowa, and he does a D&D improv show called LARP, an improv adventure. I'm on board. And it is an ongoing D&D improv show where they work through the world of Last Laugh yet because it's at the Last Laugh Theater, uh, and they bring people's suggestions in. It sounds like maybe one of the nerdiest, most Chris Hardwick things I have seen sent in in a hot minute. Their next show is Thursday, April 28th at 7.30 at the aforementioned Last Laugh Theater in Des Moines, Iowa. It's April 28th, which is six days after Earth Day. I only know April 22nd because we are doing the next version of Retrorad, my show at Meltdown, and we're doing an Earth Day show. Nice slide in uh, Kyle Clark show for the Inner's Community well, Court. You know how it I goes. support this. I support this. Katie? Yeah, Matt Monroe, who is a comedian out in Denver, does a show at the Soil Dove Underground. And this month, April 29th, they have Eddie Pepitone there. Ooh, and Eddie Pepitone. They're really excited about it. They're all big fans of Eddie. They want to get as many of his fans out there as possible. Again, it's April 29th at the Soiled Dove Underground. And you can find tickets by going to, name. they made a bit.ly link, and it's bit.ly slash Eddie Pep. Excellent, excellent. One, one P. One P. Eddie Pep sounds like the positive younger version of Eddie Pepitone. <laughs> Eddie Pep. <laughs> I'm really up. I'm Eddie Pep. I'm happy about really things. Oh, oh, nothing crushes me by the time I'm old. Also, uh, but if it does, I'll just make it funny. <laughs> uh, uh, and, and then a beta test my uh, new material show at Meltdown. Mm. The next one's May second. Oh, nice. The next one's May second. Um, so be me and uh, two comics uh, doing material. Go to nerdmeltla.com if you want info on that. Or two tickets for Retro Rad Beta Test. There's all the fine. We're all good. We've the all promoted Theater. our own stuff. And uh, oh, and I'm going to be announcing a new tour this week called uh, ID10T. So that's going to I'm going to do a bunch of dates in New England in June. Pre-sales for that are uh, Friday the 22nd. So uh, just uh, you know, I'll set up some website, uh, probably uh, ID10T.com, ID the number 10 and T.com, and then uh, that's not set up yet, but it'll be set up before Friday. Or just follow me <laughs> at our on Twitter. And here's Nerds Podcast number 800. So we are now the 800 pound gorilla. In a new podcast studio room. We are in a new podcast. we got to do a little video to show people the new podcast room because it is infinitely better than the old one. For sure. Here's Judd Apatow on the Nerdist Podcast, episode number 800. Katie, would you please roll the thing? <laughs> Katie just did. Uh, yeah, I just did radio voice. You just Could you please um, put the thing on now? <laughs> Thank you. Now entering Nerdist.com. Yeah, I saw the picture. Is that from Warriors? It's from uh, the original Warriors. Yeah. yeah, this was, uh, what's it was the, Baseball what, Furies. What's the guy's name who has the most Irish name ever? Like Michael, Michael Patrick Kelly? Or, he was on the show for a while. Yeah. He was in Dreamscape, which I still maintain someone needs to remake Dreamscape. Why does not someone make Dreamscape? For the, I still believe it's in development. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it is. Everything's being remade. Everything is being... Everything is being... But this was so great is when... Uh, when a movie comes along that is not a remake, you know, like Deadpool or Guardians or, you know, and then pre-existing properties though, but but very obscure pre-existing properties to the to the to the public to the overall public, they are not like bankable film properties that a studio would go, oh, Deadpool, we should make that, you know. True. So, you know, if you just make a good movie, people will go see it. Is that true or is that's that not theory. true? That's my theory. Have we begun? Are we easing into it? We're we're, we're yeah. gliding in. <laughs> 
we're gliding in. We're hang gliding into the uh, beginning. The tip. We're just. That's what I always this. try to. We're just think. putting it in a little bit. I try to think. Uh, has anyone done this? And then if I think no, then I go, oh, well, let's do it. I never think someone's done this. Let's do it two percent better and kind of the same <laughs> to get the same audience. Like to me, I get. I've been offered a zillion remakes. You know, which ones? Every one that you would imagine, and. Uh, I, it's not that I'm against people doing it. I'm fascinated to see if people can pull it off. You know, wh- you know when they did Charlie's Angels back in the day, right? You're yeah. like, wow, they did some kind of cool with that, and I think they're going to do it again. With with uh, Elizabeth Banks is going to. Oh, do nice! It. And so I'm like a fan of it, but as a as a writer and a director, I just feel like all I can do is not screw it up. You know, I don't even mind so much the hey, let's see what a movie version of this old TV show would look like. Mm-hmm. It's just the it's like director karaoke where someone goes, hey. I wonder what it would be like if I made that thing that was already made. <laughs> well, sometimes well, it works yeah. out. I'm, yeah, it does. What's the best? Like Gus Van Sant. I was, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. was like the, the most. Shot. Yeah, shopper shot. <laughs> boy, oh boy, it blew that Hitchcock yeah. guy out of the water. No, no, I think it was uh, John Carpenter's The Thing. I think that might be uh, better than the original fifties version. Yeah. See, I never saw it. See, I think it's when you do remakes. But no one knows the original. See, I never saw that, but I remember seeing the new one with Kurt Russell as a kid yeah. and thinking it was the best movie I've ever now, seen. Now, what about the new, new one? With, with uh, Mary, Mary Elizabeth, Elizabeth Winstead? Winstead. <laughs> yeah. What? Really? Uh, that was okay. I didn't see it. What? <laughs> <laughs> I want to I wanna see the new, new one 10 years from now starring the kid from Modern Family. Yeah. yeah. Let's, already start, let's, let's already start casting for 2025, yeah. 2026 season. Like a no one asked which kid. They're just like, yeah, that, was, yeah, that kid. Most any likely kid. the white kid. Yeah, it's probably the, yeah. Like the boy, kid. the girl. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It They're going to get one. Put them in there. <laughs> I just want to say from Modern Family on the press junket. I'll tell you what you got to do is you got to make a movie now and then start recasting its remake. Yes, in ten years. If you're smart, if you're smart, that's what you'll do. Uh, they should remake it, Stephen King's It, the TV yeah. version. I love that they're remaking literally everything. Everything. It's not like well, they're doing the Mist. They're doing every yeah. weird, tiny movie or movies that were like not giant at the time. Like everything is being remade. There's no movie that you could think of that someone isn't. Well, it's a lot trying, easier, yeah. I think, to not think of an original idea. Well, I think it's just, I think it's because, uh, you know, th- th- there's so much content out there, and studios are run by marketing divisions, and marketing divisions go, well, people have heard of this thing, so this might yeah. rise above the noise a little bit. I like to try to be the alternative to that. <laughs> you know, I, I really do. I, I, in my head, I really think there's a huge market, almost like, a, it's almost like when uh, there's like a, a niche market for it. There's a niche market for new thoughts. Ooh, he said niche. <laughs> niche. I like how niche now is basically like anything that did not exist previously. Exactly. Like yeah. new, <laughs> new. New, new stuff. Yeah. Like the rare movie right. that is actually trying to do something that hasn't been done 85 times well, that, before. Well, that's why I feel, like, I feel like you have this really great space in film where you, you go, hey, maybe I don't spend two hundred million dollars yeah. on a movie, and I work with funny people, and I, I, we make a thing, and you know, and then if it works, great, yeah. and if not, we didn't. No one lost hundreds of millions of dollars. Well, everyone is like, okay, we're going to make three two hundred million dollar movies a year. Yeah. Okay, so we'll spend six hundred million on that, and then we probably have another hundred and fifty million to make a few. <laughs> <laughs> Twenty to thirty-two million dollar movies, and uh, you know we're like the the bets against uh, you know whatever. 
It's just Pluto Nash. It's high limit. Did you just reference Pluto Nash? Yeah, I appreciate that. It's like it's like high limit slots or like high the high limit tables where it's just there's there they are not getting boners for the twenty five dollar table. They are they don't care about it. They don't. They just want to win big, which is they can lose big. It's the charity loss. It's like uh, well, we also lost money on these things, but we feel good. We did them. Well, it's it's kind of funny because. We used to make movies for $10 million, and if they made $30 million, we were like, we nailed it. <laughs> you know, all those early movies are $10 million movies, movies like you know, Billy Madison. Yep. Um, you know, the uh, 40-Year-Old Virgin was a $20 million movie, and it really was. like If they made double or double and a half, you thought, this is a huge hit, and we can continue to make movies. And then I think... When like movies like Avatar make a billion dollars, everyone just goes, "You can make a billion dollars <laughs> on one movie," and then they start going like, "Well, what would you need to do? Well, you need Chinese people to love it. <laughs> you, need, <laughs> you need Russians. Can we get Russians? Yeah. What about yeah. South America? So, what does everyone in the world like? They yeah. like things that fly around and hit buildings, and, and then you just they like yeah. blue." people exactly exactly. and so some of it can be amazing you know james cameron's always going to make something that you want to see that's incredible and 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 he's you know he's trying to do something unique and then there's just people blowing shit up yeah yeah Uh, and 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 also people go oh what is the limitation of movies that don't do that and so suddenly you really don't get movies like The Verdict anymore, which right. used to have real budgets. Yeah. Because they go like, well, The Verdict is not going to do well in Malaysia. Right. We're, we're limited to this, this market. And so you, you, they don't really spend the same amount of money they used to do to make you know, a Sidney Pollock movie. And I think that's the price we pay. Although now we get like 10 billion amazing $2 million independent movies, yeah. which is awesome. Uh, and in a lot of ways, it might even be better. I might want... 50 Cyruses and lose by the verdict. (laughs) (laughs) It might be better. Uh, So I'm not sure. I don't have a strong opinion about it. But I find it more fascinating than irritating. I just, I miss the, and I guess maybe Deadpool kind of brought this back a little bit, but the, you know, those those big budget action adventure comedies from the 80s. You're like 48 Hours and Beverly Hills Cops and... Rated R comedies. Like your rated R comedies. action and violent. Well, I mean, you have like uh, the 22 and 3 Jump Streets. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. That's, that's true. And but, they're going to do a big one now. So, yeah, the Men in Black exciting. one, right? Yeah, yeah it's which is a fantastic idea. It's great idea. And those guys are so hilarious. So, yeah, they they do happen. But the other thing we have to remember is when they would do those expensive ones back in the day, most of them did not work at all. Yes, <laughs> you know, you mainly got spies like us. Yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah. It was, spies like us, cops and Robertsons. But they yeah. had the spies like us. They had the Nixon faces when they came yeah. out. Of the, wasn't that it? No, no, no. That was airplane. That was airplane. That was airplane. They yeah. did the. Uh, when they went in the, the gravity thing. I That's don't right. know. Spies Like Us was... It, it's fine, but I remember being psyched for Spies Like Us. Right. Like, post-Ghostbusters, you're like, now we're getting this and combo? And post-Fletch, <laughs> too. Yeah. Post-Fletch yeah. and post-Ghostbusters. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. I was, I was like, thinking, oh, this was going to be a life-changing Stripes-like yeah. experience. Those guys... But it was a harbinger of nothing but trouble. That was... That was in the Those guys, though, uh, as brilliant as they were, they needed a good director. Sure. Because when you see the, if you watch the Ghostbusters, um, the, the Ghostbusters DVD had like footage that they cut out of the movie. And you're like, I'm really glad Ivan Reitman cut some of this stuff out of the movie because yeah. it was them just doing other weird characters that had yeah. nothing to do 
with anything. Oh, that's hilarious. I know I saw the Stripes uh, DVD extras, and they showed Bill Murray improvising. I think he was improvising maybe the scene where he throws the basketball out the window and uh-huh. goes through the window, <laughs> which is a really a perfect scene. If you watch the first 10 minutes of Stripes, every movie I've ever made is copying the first 10 minutes of Stripes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just how they're like, they set up each character. You yep. see him like trying to teach English to all the foreign people. You see him <laughs> driving the cab and then tossing the keys off the bridge. And... I, I've done that a zillion times. That sound, that, that <laughs> soundtrack, just everything in the pizza and sure. the dry cleaning. And it's when music had to tell you you were watching a comedy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've avoided that at all costs. There's you know. a certain style of we're gonna dance around the jokes with you, and here we go yeah. in the room. Who's that? Oh, and we're gonna rush out now because someone is chasing us. You know, like yeah. I don't, I don't I think do you're that. missing out an opportunity to do it that exact. Way. I prefer just some just weird guy with a guitar in a room alone. <laughs> just a sad man. It's, it's much cheaper. Yeah. And, uh, and, it, and, it's, and uh, it's better. Yeah. That, that's a, a type of score. How do you think comedy me. specifically has changed in the past, you know, since, since the 80s? Like what the types of films now, the types of comedy that works, is it, uh, are they more intimate stories or is it more like crazy aspirational stories? What do you think? Uh, it's hard for me to, to judge it. When I was young, you know, I loved all the SNL people type movies and yeah. Monty Python type movies and, and things like that. But then I got into what Barry Levinson was doing with Diner yeah. and Cameron Crowe's movies. So all I'm ever thinking of is how do we do variations of, of those? In one way or the other, I'm just trying to do combos with the influence of other people like Kevin Smith or Swingers and, and things like that. And so those things existed then and they exist now. Maybe there's a lot more of it now because a lot of it is on TV. So that's what we're trying to do with Girls. In a way, you could say Girls is a direct descendant of Diner yeah, yeah. with women. Uh, and that's just a style that I, that I like. Um, but it's hard for me to know outside of what I'm doing if it's any different. I mean, I feel like you have the same probably – a combination of good and awful. You got your, you know, Chevy Chase in a Benji movie, and we have our current variation. Are you talking about Oh Heavenly Dog? <laughs> oh Heavenly Dog. You know, we, we, you know, people are making spies like us now. I think, but back then, I think we felt like there's like eight funny people, yeah, in movies, and now there might be twenty five to fifty people right. that we love to see. You know, it used yeah. to just be like Bill Murray and Steve Martin and. Dan Aykroyd, and then maybe like Charles Grodin, and on the side Walter Matthau. They were like yeah, you know these people, but, but now there's really a ton of people I'd be very excited to see in movies. So when you, because uh, it seems like you you excel at kind of locking in with someone and extracting what it is that makes them funny about yeah. them, like mm-hmm. with Pete Holmes or yeah. Amy or uh, yeah. or any of the. So how does that how does that collaboration come about, and then how do you start getting at whatever the meat is of what it is that they do? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with uh, Gary Shandling. I, you know, I've been thinking a lot about him as we're you know preparing for his memorial, which is coming up this weekend, and and uh, you know he was the guy who just said you got to go deep inside. Just who are you? What do you care about? What do you like as a person? What are you covering up? And that deep psychology always works when you sit in a room with someone like Amy Schumer and have that conversation. You know, that's all it is. It's, Amy, what's going on with you? How's it going? What's happening when you're dating? Where does it go wrong? And why do you think you make those choices? And then suddenly she's thinking, like Chandler, 
thinks about himself when he's doing Larry Sanders. And she, and then she goes in a room by herself and she soul searches. And when you're brave enough, like Amy was, you get something like Trainwreck. And for me, it's the same process uh, for every project. I'm really putting it through like a Gary filter. And I, I remember when we were doing Freaks and Geeks, the whole time I had just finished the last season of The Larry Sanders Show. Every day in Freaks and Geeks, I thought, we are just making The Larry Sanders Show but in high school with these characters. <laughs> like, it could be like Martin Starr is Jeffrey Tambor's son. <laughs> and, 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 it, and that's how I tricked myself. Like, in my head, I'm like, well, what would the, what would the differences be between a Freaks and Geeks scene and a Larry Sanders scene? There would be zero difference. It's just the same exact way of looking at scene work and psychology and comedy drama balance. You would just do it in high school with Mr. Rosso and these stoner kids or geek kids and it really was what got me through it i mean there's no question that gary somehow managed to i mean especially in the 80s like when the original when he did that original showtime was it showtime the original yeah, gary yeah. shanley show yeah and then it was on fox and it's then gary it, shanley show. yeah and that original show was in a time which was commonly known as the comedy boom yes there were a million comedy specials mm-hmm. a million stand-ups everywhere and and he really had this kind of meta take on what a sitcom was and what sure. that type of comedy was. And then, of course, with Larry Sanders, yeah. like, met, doubled up sure. even better. Yeah. yeah. So uh, was it really uh, – because I didn't really know him that well. Did you? Were you friends with him oh, for absolutely. a long time? Oh, absolutely. He's one of my closest friends in the world. I mean, really, like an older brother or father figure. Just like someone who did nothing but be nice. I mean, I met him when I was a kid. I met him when I was uh, um, 23, and he asked me to write the Grammys. And then he (laughs) did a cameo on the pilot of the Ben Stiller show, which I still believe got us picked up, that him and Roseanne did a cameo in the pilot. It made us seem like we were cool and hooked into something. (laughs) And then the second the show was canceled, he said, you got to come work for the Larry Sanders show, which I did on and off for five years. And then advice and reading scripts and going to cuts and watching stand-up. Always. And uh, and he did that for a lot of people. It wasn't just me. He was very available to people to say, yeah, I'll read your script. I'll give you notes and, and help just tons of people. And but, but his ideas, I think, have affected everybody. Absolutely. Uh, and so just the approach to the work is all I'm ever preaching. So when I'm sitting in a room talking super bad with Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg, all I'm doing is going, what would Gary say? And I feel like they take it and they do the same thing. And now Stoller does the same thing, yeah. and McKay does the same thing, and, and you know, and then people that you know who just were influenced, like Ricky Gervais and people like that. They're all working from a, a, an approach that Gary brought to it, starting with its Gary Shandling show because he didn't like sitcoms. He wrote for Welcome Back, Cotter. He, he you know, he said uh, that he was writing. An episode of Three's Company. Oh, my God. And he went into a meeting, and the producer said, I don't think Chrissy would do that. <laughs> and, and he said, I thought, I, I can't do this for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote the camping episode of Sanford and Son. Oh, my God. Uh, so, And he also wrote the Carvelli episode of Welcome Back, Cotter, where there's like oh, a boxing wow. match with Carvelli. Um, and... Uh, and so he didn't like the form. That's why it's Gary Shandling's show is a deconstructing all of it. Then I think that the, the artifice of just a sitcom was too constricting, and that's why 
he did the Larry Sanders show to get as close to reality as he could get. But yeah. he did that at a time before – because I feel like the 80s had to happen – for our culture to understand irony a little bit yeah. because that was at a time where people were – now everything is deconstructed a million different ways. But that was not common in, in that time. Yeah. I, I don't think there was a, a clear precedent for it. Uh, I mean people had done behind the scenes of things. Uh, you know, the Ben Stiller show, which was before the Larry Sanders show, Ben did a show on MTV. I remember. I had I had tapes of it. Yeah, and it was hilarious, and it was behind the scenes of a variety show. Uh, it was played much more comically and, and broader. Uh, but I think maybe there's more connection between the Larry Sanders show and something like Network or The Hospital. I don't know if you've <laughs> ever seen The Hospital, which is an incredible Patty Chayefsky movie, which is just uh, the precursor to St. Elsewhere – and Grey's Anatomy, he made this movie, which was like, oh, what you're not seeing in a hospital is really terrifying. Yeah. That these are real people <laughs> making real mistakes in a crazy bureaucracy that gets you killed. Sure. And it's, uh, and I think maybe projects like that were more of an influence to him. Did you write the uh, T.J. Opudertoot sketch? I did not. That was a David Cross sketch. Yeah. Oh. That's from the Ben Stiller show. David Cross came on the Larry Sanders sh- – I'm sorry, on the Ben Stiller show – there were uh, changes in our writing staff. We needed somebody new. And Janine Graflo said, you should hire our friend David Cross. And we were completely unaware of him. <laughs> we, we just, he, was, he was from Boston. I, don't, I, didn't, I didn't know of him ever coming to L.A. The comedy scene was much smaller back then. And we just looked at some tapes because he would you know, do video on stage in, in addition to performing with this group. And... I've never seen that before. Like people go on stage and weave the video, uh, Mister Show style, through their live act, and it all seemed hilarious and great. And so we brought David on for the last few episodes, and instantly everything he wrote got on the show. You know when someone comes on and you're like, "Oh, he's better than all of us. He's way better than all of us." And and uh, and he just got tons of stuff on. It, it, it's also because we did a lot of parodies. You know, I think he wrote the. Uh, Few Good Men sketch. Oh, that nice. was great. Which is a great sketch, which I believe he doesn't care for at all. <laughs> I think he probably could write it in five minutes almost as a parody of a parody. You know, to him it was just like <laughs> such an obvious joke. Oh, you guys are doing the uh, this into that joke. Yeah, I know, yeah. I know. Uh, but, the, but, no. but Andy Dick's Kiefer Sutherland character, he's like, have you seen any of a cold in a menorah? Because I don't think that happened. I mean, it's like the whole – I've watched those sketches so many fucking times and – we just um, we did a wrap up show last night for Better Call Saul, and it's amazing to see Odenkirk, yeah. who is just jaw dropping on that show. Everyone's amazing okay. on that show, but he's like a, we were talking about he's like yeah. a legitimate yeah. actor, like a legitimate oh, sure. serious Emmy contending actor. Yeah. Now. Well, I think uh, you know David was so uh, you know ready to do inventive things and. You know, that, I always loved that sketch. But there was you know, a sense from some of the writers on the show that those types of sketches were, were easy. And we were doing a combination of that type of sketch, which we loved, like at SCTV. You know, George Carlin and Death of a Salesman. Yeah, you know, we yeah, always yeah. loved that mm-hmm. kind of sketch. But as the show was progressing, and we only did 13, it became clear that there was a whole other style of comedy that was about to evolve on the show, which was what things that you know, people like uh, Bob Odenkirk and... Uh, Dave were writing, which was T.J. Pooter Toots, and there was this uh, uh, Kill Doug Shackey. Kill Doug Shackey, yeah. <laughs> which uh, was a sketch Bob, Bob wrote about uh, Andy Dick, who lived next door to a rapper who wrote a song about how he 
hated him because he could really throw his uh, trimmings over the, the fence or something. So yeah. it was just a, a, like a guy saying, I'm going to kill Jackie, my dad. I was using street terminology to describe a situation <laughs> in my life. Like he's trying to use, <laughs> he's trying to use the First Amendment to, uh, yeah, you know, uh, basically. Yeah, it's a great, it's a fucking great And so that sketch. was a, a little bit of the, uh, you know, the, the tragedy of the show going down was, you know, we only did 13. And so as we're getting to episode six, seven, eight, and we're acquiring new writers and, and and realizing, oh, David Cross should be on the show. You could feel what was about to bubble up, and then uh, you know those guys went off and made you know maybe the best sketch show ever, Mister yeah. Show, which was kind of interesting because they didn't hang out at the show. They didn't really know each other and didn't really take to each other till after the show. And I remember when the when the show was canceled. Uh, I walked into Bob's office and there was a sketch on his desk. It's like a sad scene from a movie. Your show's been canceled and there's just paper laying around and you pick up what Bob was working on. And it was a parody of Ken Burns' baseball documentary. I don't even remember what the jokes were, but I remember my heart broke. That we, we'd never get to make Bob's. He also had written for The Stiller Show, I think they did it on Mr. Show, the new Ku Klux Klan, which... Yeah. Uh, and so that I, you know, I'm the kind of person when shows go down, I I don't recover for half a decade. I just I I'll think about it forever. Like what could have been? Uh, although we were so tired, I mean, we were so tired. We were working from six in the morning till two at night. Ben and I would wrap shooting at midnight and go to a sound mix. I mean, it, we didn't really know how to do it. I'm sure production wise, we were doing everything wrong. To make it the hardest job you ever could have. <laughs> and now when I watch people like Key and Peel and Amy Schumer and, and, and Nick Kroll do their shows, they really know how to do it to the point where they actually enjoy making the show. <laughs> and the season ends and they seem like the same person. They haven't gone to the pits of hell to dig it out of themselves. So, But back then, there weren't sketch shows shot on film all little tiny movies where you're inventing the wheel every time you shoot a sketch. And it was brutal. I mean, there was just no experience uh, for us to to copy of how the production would work. Did you ever call Gary and go, I don't know what I'm doing. What am I supposed to do? I think that Gary, you know, said to someone who said to me recently, Gary was always happy that when he called you to complain about how hard it was to write the show that you understood <laughs> because he, even at a sketch show it's really hard you have a bunch of people they're writing a lot of sketches we were trying to fix the sketches where snl chucks all the sketches out the window after the table read that they don't shoot for the most part they don't get polished and fixed we had a different theory which was we're going to rewrite it, and if it takes two months to rewrite a sketch we'll do that and then we'll shoot it but we didn't like toss things, so it was a very, a very different type of process. Uh, I only met, uh, I think I only met Gary twice, and the second, and the second time I met, and they, they were awkward. They were awkward encounters. Yeah. They were really awkward encounters, and I couldn't figure out: is he doing a bit or is he mad? I can't figure out. I couldn't get a read on it. Yeah, he's, but, uh, he was very much into having the poker face at times, where he's soaking it in, and he's re- he's ready to go with you. But it could throw you because he's just like, what's happening? How's it going? And then you don't know what space that means. But really what he's trying to do is see what happens. And also, you know, 
if you're a comedy nerd, then you're yeah. talking to Gary Shen, so it's very difficult yeah. to to jump in. Yeah, he but was, he's ready to go. I mean, that's the thing. Is like I think that's why the Ricky Gervais interaction that that interview that he did with Gary that's like one of the most cringe filled interactions ever. Have you ever seen this? I don't know if I've seen it's it. It's incredible. It was uh, Ricky Gervais had a series uh, in the UK which was just he would sit and interview someone he admired yeah. and he did one where he came out to do it with uh, Gary and it was it, he couldn't have written like a more cringeworthy interview if he tried. It's so brutal. And it was naturally cringeworthy? Like they, their chemistry was that Essentially, like, Ricky Gervais was trying to do his Ricky Gervais, like, thing of, like, controlling the environment, and Gary would, like, comment on the fact that he's all he's doing is trying to control the environment. <laughs> yeah. So he wasn't, yes, he was basically like, why are you doing that? Yeah, why yeah. It's like, it? Ricky Gervais was like, hey, let's go outside, and he'd just walk outside, and Gary would, like, look at the camera and go, he doesn't even check to see if I'm following him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty amazing. I do I miss that. And, I, I, you know, I think that Gary said... At one point that Ricky Gervais said when it was done that he didn't even understand what Gary was doing. <laughs> that Gary was just basically – I don't know. It's hard to say It's because some, some of it is unconscious and it's just in the moment. Like Gary's totally in the moment. He feels what's happening. He feels that – he could feel that Ricky Gervais is not present and in tune with what's happening. And so Gary is uh, out cringing him. You know, it's almost like, oh, you're the cringe, you're the cringe comedy guy. Let me show you how how it really can go. Uh, like he, I, he answers the phone while they're doing the interview. He does like just all kinds of stuff. Yeah, it's it's really really uh, hysterical and uncomfortable, and it is it does feel like a guy saying, "I invented this." Don't like, fuck with me. Like you think that you do this, but watch how bad it can how get. Could, how could you make that? How, <laughs> how could that have not been cringeworthy? Like, what would Ricky have had to have done? Um, listen, just listen to him. I, I think that, uh, I, yeah, I, I, I literally think it's like Gary went into a gear. They don't know each other. He doesn't know what gear Gary's in, and it throws him. And he doesn't even realize that Gary's doing a bit. <laughs> you know, and so that he can't roll with a bit because he's actually now thrown and thinks that something else is happening, but really Gary's doing something that Gary knows. Yeah, he can't match the tone, essentially. And, it's all, and in, yeah. in Ricky Gervais's case, you know, by that point he probably it's like, I don't understand. I don't understand why this isn't working. This machine that normally works, it's not yeah. pushing all the buttons, it's yeah, not yeah, working. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I think all Gary wants is for like to be look for him to look him in the eye and like be present with him. And just be like, how's it going? Like just totally yeah. real and all the nervous energy and the artifice of this interview Gary doesn't like. He wants to you know, forget all that. So when Ricky Gervais just leaves the room and walks off and Gary's like, I'm right here. He's walking away from me. Uh, you know, it's his way of saying like, oh, look, he's like in his own head. He's not in his heart. Yeah. Yeah. He's not really communicating with me. In a real way, and then Gary just kind of stares at him, and then Ricky's just thrown <laughs> by the stare. He doesn't quite know what the stare means, and uh, and it's fascinating. And it is one of those things where maybe ten minutes later, when it was over, they could have gone, "Oh no, I was doing this," and it could be been completely different. But it was awesome because it was in the moment. And I think that was what Gary was interested in uh, was like a real moment like a real experience 
I don't just need to sit here and, and talk to you and we'll pretend we're in showbiz and I'll give advice or I'll tell you about my journey. We're about to have something real right now, even if it's uncomfortable or hilariously uncomfortable, it's about to go down. And I think he did that on stage too. At the end, he was a lot less interested in joke craft as much as getting on stage and just seeing what happened and seeing if he could be purely himself. And he used to say, I don't even care if I get laughs. My my dream is that I get no laughs. And an hour later when you're home, it hits you what happened. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's what happened in that interview. And I I would assume Ricky Gervais loves it too because it's the essence of what he does love. It's just he was kind of pulled into it as opposed to being able to create it. I would be willing to bet that he probably still sits at home at at night in bed and going – God damn it! Why yeah. didn't I like but, just because he's must yeah. he's a, a, clearly a comedy fan. Yeah. So there's no even even I think it's probably difficult because it's his point of view to go ah he yeah. out Gervaised me. I think it's <laughs> I think it's more like God damn it! I well, could have deep sixed it. So yeah. I, I would yeah. assume that he loves it and should love it because again it was an amazing moment. Who cares who handled it? What way? It to Gary the whole idea was a real Zen idea. Like it doesn't matter what anyone thinks of it. It happened. Yeah. yeah. So let's show people because it, in a way, it's the ultimate Larry Sanders moment. A guy comes to someone's house to interview a guy. Gary's upset that they've kind of set up in the house without his permission. He asked them to wait until he got got home. He's like, wait till I get home, then we'll figure it all out. But they're all set up when he gets there. And it's a real Larry Sanders moment. It's Larry comes home, the camera crew's all set up, (laughs) and he's irritated. And then you just see what happens when it starts off on a bad foot. Uh, It never recovers. And it was was when he was doing the uh, the interviews for the Not the Very Best of the Larry Sanders Sanders Show DVD. Mm -hmm. Did you ever see any of those? Like the extras? He just did interviews, like new interviews yeah. for the uh, the DVD, and one of the weirder ones is the one with Alec Baldwin, where they go boxing. Yeah, and it's like a, a very similar, just like they don't know each other too well, mm-hmm. and it's in this very odd environment that uh, you know Gary's not used to, and like they're like boxing and hitting each other really hard, but it's very much very similar. Well, yeah, Gary loved boxing. Years. He loved he loved boxing, and he spent years on the on the Larry Sanders Show DVDs. So he went out. And he spent years interviewing people associated with the show. So he went and he, he would talk to Seinfeld and Tom Petty and his ex-girlfriend, Linda Doucette, and would have these very intimate conversations that, uh, you know, that were, were you know, sometimes really funny, sometimes really awkward. And he loved that. That, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have the confrontation with that person on video <laughs> right now. And I think they were shooting something with uh, Ricky – for the, his DVD and something else for Ricky's show on the same day. Like, oh, let's do both <laughs> on the same day. The funniest one is the one with Seinfeld because they're out in Central Park and they're yeah. talking about comedy and it's incredible. They both just wrapped their shows so they, they still have a lot of, of like passion about talking about it. And at one point, Gary's saying, you know, I think all comedians, you know, you know, you know they have issues. You know, they, 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 they need to be heard and then Seinfeld's like, what about talents? What about just being in it because you're talented? You have God-given talents. And Gary goes, I'm hearing a lot of rage. <laughs> but that's, a, that's such a great way to approach it, not just comedy, but anything's like, what is the essence of what this moment is? Because I yeah. feel like, especially now, 
It's so – I mean we end our podcast by telling people to live in the present. But it's so hard to live in the present, oh, yeah. especially because we have devices and a million sure. responsibilities. Yeah. And That's why I'm doing stand-up again. I, 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 I really felt like you see people get stale when they stop doing stand-up. And also, they're disconnected from the moment. And stand-up is one of the only places where you really feel in the moment. Absolutely. And uh, I'm doing uh, a show with Dimitri Martin and Jimmy Carr this Thursday. So At the Balboa. At the Balboa, April 21st. In San Diego. So please, please come. I've actually made a mistake, which is I've uh, booked out the Judd and Friends where the friends are just so much better than me. <laughs> You know, it's funny when you book the show and you realize, like, oh, I'm the opener. Uh, <laughs> I've worked with Tamiji and, 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 and Jimmy Carr, who is, you know, kind of as funny as, as you get. But it's been fun to try to force myself into those uncomfortable moments and in the moment, you know, writing an act, talking to the crowd and going, what does that wake up in your head? And it, it does affect you during the day. Just that it's almost like a meditation. If you go on stage and talk for an hour, you're not thinking about anything else, and it helps you the rest of the day to go, oh, I can just be here because I'm, my body's used to not uh, you know, multitasking on that stage. Yeah, and there's, not, there's <laughs> yeah. no other experience that's analogous to it because no matter how – you know, it, which is why I think like when you meet Pooh and they go, hey, you know, uh, my brother is pretty funny. Man, I think yeah. maybe he should do stand-up. Like have him try because yeah. it is a much <laughs> – dip- you know, like there's nothing that is exactly like that immediate relationship yeah. of of you with a room full of people that are like yeah. lead us somewhere exactly and you have mm-hmm. to fucking figure yeah. it out i really like it i i mean i've had the best time uh, uh doing all, all the shows with you i yeah. mean I, you know the the other night i went up uh at meltdown and i just interviewed for my new assistant i just brought people on stage and <laughs> and and you know for me a few years ago that would have been the most terrifying thing in the world <laughs> to be in front of you know a large group of people with no script trying to be in the moment and funny and real and talk to people about why they think they should be my assistant. And uh, and it went really well, but I couldn't have done it a few years ago. And I, it is right. working a muscle that I think also is alive when you're at the typewriter alone. It, it, it wakes something up. It's hard for me yeah. to know what it is. But I just know when I talk to Lena Dunham and I read an episode of Girls and I give her notes, I'm way better because I'm doing – you know things at, at comedy clubs because it's forcing yeah. you to be in the moment. It's forcing you to pay attention to what's going yeah. on, and 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 it's always fun to see who really gives a shit about stand up. Because when people start getting successful, and they're like, ah, maybe I don't yeah. need to, you know, that I think the people who because you only get better when you keep putting yourself in uncomfortable situations, yeah. And uh, and you see the people who constantly want to push themselves, and then other yeah. people who go, you know, I'm kind of comfortable. I don't really yeah. feel the hunger. I don't need to exactly. do that anymore. It's yeah. a lot of work. And then you know, and their movies tend to, to suffer. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like you could just tell that they're not engaged. And on some level, you're understanding what people laugh at, you, and what people's concerns are. And I think when you don't do it, you do become like the person up on on the hill in in some way. And you know, for certain people, I get it when people stop working a lot and just go I've done enough I'm tired I just want to sit home and pet my dog yeah I do think there for a lot of people they just think I've drained my vein (laughs) (laughs) I'm done I'm not comfortable enough being alone to not be creative so I I have total respect for people who want to shut it down but I, I actually feel the opposite I'd like to take everything that I've learned and see if I could keep rolling it into some new experiment and maybe those get better because I'm I'm uh, 
the result of everything that I've done and I'm trying to stay engaged. Like people like Larry Gelbart. I mean, Larry Gelbart, when he was older, he, he wrote so many amazing HBO movies, uh, Barbarians at the Gate and what was, was the other one called Weapons of Mass Destruction. And he just, you know, well into his like late 70s, early 80s was on fire. And engaged because what else is there to do? Just be like sleepy and old and, yeah. you know, like so So you do have a choice. Like, oh, I can just start shutting this down or go, I don't know, Scorsese just did, uh, you know, uh, Wolf of Wall Street. You know, how old is he doing Wolf of Wall Street? Yeah. And that seems exciting to me. To well, see if he can did do, do vinyl too. So <laughs> that's, a, that's a fun show. <laughs> but it's like you think you look at the uh, guys like, Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks that I mean they're and Carl Reiner's in his 90s now yeah. and just because they've stayed engaged like they're still able to just Joan Rivers sure. too Joan Rivers Joan yeah. Rivers would still be performing if she were yeah. still alive yeah. I mean she was about yeah. she's about 80 79 80 yeah. Yeah. Carl Reiner's right just wrote a book about the Dick Van Dyke show. I see. I see a guy like Mel Brooks, and it makes me feel so much better to think, oh, I could still have another forty years of yeah. shit to yeah. do. Sure, and it's not you know, and not not feel like as long as you're pursuing some type of creative yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. That you know, I mean, I don't know how well I'm going to do in thirty yeah. or forty years, but if you're, but who cares? As long as yeah. you're, as long as you're still doing stuff, I don't know. like the ocean that much. <laughs> I don't either. When people are like, you'll be walking on the beach, yeah, thinking about what happened. Uh, that is death to me. I, I can't uh, imagine it. And we went and visited uh, Mel Brooks, Bill Hader, and I, and just just to chat with him because. We're just so lucky that that's even possible. And <laughs> I just when we left, we, he walked us out. And as we're walking away, he was just like, now get the fuck out of here. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, oh, he goes, oh, come again, but not for like three, four months. <laughs> <laughs> and he's as funny as, as so. anyone you ever meet. Uh, and so that's you know, that's exciting. So I'm excited to uh, you know do some stand up there. But I but it's funny because I put some you know concerts on sale, uh, you know just to go. Would anyone go you know to see me at, you know at these shows? Because I did Carnegie Hall with Sandler in November, but he was a secret guest. People didn't know that he was coming. It was for the New York Comedy Festival. But there is a funny kind of tension to putting shows on sale. And hoping people go. Well, because there's no... You, you cannot... Help, there are very few markers in creative pursuits that kind of give you a sense of like, how am I doing? Does anyone give a shit? Yeah. And whether or not people buy tickets oh, is shit. a direct commentary on whether or not people give a shit. And you know? I didn't see that coming because I was like, this will be great. I'll do stand-up. It's not like the pressure of putting Trainwreck out and hoping someone sees this expensive movie. And, and if they don't, so I'm going to be really depressed for the next year and a half that... So I thought, oh, stand-up will not be that pressure. But then you like put shows on sale, and you're like, wow, they, they don't like me in Anaheim. <laughs> Anaheim hates me. <laughs> the Grove is a do? tough sell. It's a you tough know? sell at the Grove. And then it's like, uh, okay, well, let's see how San Diego thinks. We're going to find out. And, uh, and so it's a, it is. It's a very direct, like, wow, they like me as much as... A third of a room full of people. In this, in this city, they like me enough for a whole room full of people. But what's odd, what, what's odd is that there is kind of a weird – I always refer to it as like this weird kind of almost consistent cultural penetration yeah. is that I've noticed that anywhere in the country – I do about 50 dates yeah. a year. And they're, they're, the numbers are around the same in every market. Yeah. And those people aren't – 
communicating necessarily, yes, yes. but for some reason, it's like it's like oh, your Twitter follower count. Yeah, exactly. Like I've got 1.4 million tw- Twitter followers. Okay, and that seems like a brag, but it's been basically that for like half a decade. Right? <laughs> I cannot get it above that number. Like where you see friends, you, you know, as they like rise and rise. Like Schumer, like has like eighty thousand. You're like, oh, this is fun working with Amy, and then it's like, oh, it's a quarter of a million, and then it's like a million, and it's like two million, and you're like, oh, you see it growing, but you see yours. Like, I don't think I've added a follower in like two years. Like America likes me one point hey, four you, million. Yeah. Amy, can you <laughs> can you retweet me? Amy, can you retweet yeah. me? Yeah. Can you give me follow Friday? Give yeah. me a <laughs> You know, I saw Amy at um, the, uh, uh, the Comedy Central did an upfront yes. for advertisers, and, and Amy opened it, and, uh, and she was hilarious. And right before the show started, I asked the exe- one of the executives, like, hey, are we allowed to, like, is it like can we, like, swear? Is it okay if, like, we drop? And they go, yeah, that should be okay. But one of Amy's opening shows, <laughs> the punchline was something like, what I'm saying is my pussy smells like a small barnyard animal. And I was like, okay, I guess I can probably say shit. I guess I can get away with shit at this point. It's the new upfronts. Yeah. yeah. But, she, uh, but she was really funny. And, but she said something on stage that for a minute I thought, oh, that sounds really sincere. And it kind of bummed me out for her, which she said something like to the effect of, uh, yeah, being, she was made jokes about being famous. And she was like, oh, yeah, it fucking sucks. Yeah. That it almost has kind of taken away some of her just ability to be herself that she's yes. been conditioned to be a comedian all these yeah. years and now it's being dissected nine different ways and her just so many things about her that I, I kind of in a way I mean it's kind of weird to say like I feel bad for that millionaire yeah. but she has risen to the top she yes. is in the top comic yes. spot right yeah. now it's different and and there's a piece of it that seems like oh there's some that is not entirely happy maybe that maybe it kind of sucks a little bit up well, there well i think that you know i always feel bad because i'm like part of the team trying to make that happen for a person <laughs> but you also know you're ruining their life <laughs> and they don't know it but you know it yeah you know so i mean i've been around working with comedians as a writer you know in a serious way since Stiller, right? So before that, with Tom Arnold, I wrote all these Tom Arnold specials. Right when him and Roseanne got together, I wrote three HBO specials for Tom. I sat with Tom and tried to come up with the Tom persona. Like, how do you come up with a... An idea of who he is. Drugs? Uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, who is he in the, in the, in the stratosphere of, uh, of Roseanne and how people think of him as this guy who's dating Roseanne and now he's on her show and he's How's he not going to be show. a dopey sidekick? Yeah, just what is this? And we, you know, we talked about it in terms of stand-up and these specials, which were really funny. And they were reality-driven specials with sketches setting them up. So Farley did one and Frank Zappa was in one and Sandra Bernhardt and Martin Mull. I mean, it was, they were really fun. But with each person that you're trying to help, you know, launch, you also see that when the world loves them, they walk outside, their reality is completely different. I mean, the day after Superbad, Jonah Hill, you know, he can't really walk down the street in the same way ever again. It's just not the same thing, and it does alter your your interaction with the world. Mm. I was trying to do a stand-up joke about this, about... You know, if Tom Hanks is in a restaurant and he's just in a bad mood and he sends back his steak, that waiter for the rest of time thinks that's how Tom Hanks acts. 
Yeah. Tom yeah. Hanks is such a bitch with his steak, man. Oh, my God. He's not like the movies at all. He is whiny. I've seen him eat steak in so many movies. He never sent one steak back, but real Tom Hanks sends every fucking steak back that he's ever had. Like you can't have the full array of emotions. Like, I was in a hotel, and... Uh, it was really late. I'm like, I'm going to have some ice cream. I'll just have a quick like, couple of spoons of ice cream. It's midnight before I go to bed. <laughs> and then it's like, you know, it'll be up in like, like 15 minutes. Okay, now it's 15 minutes. Then it's a half hour. Now it's a quarter to one in the morning. And I have to get up at like 6.30. And I'm hungry. And I'm so mad they lied to me about how long it takes <laughs> ice cream. So then I'm like on the phone. I'm just like, you know, you guys said it's 15 minutes, like 45 minutes. I got to get up in the morning. <laughs> I gotta get up in the morning, and then I'm cursing. I'm just like, I don't know what the fuck is going on. I don't know what the fuck is going on. I mean, it's not that hard. It's a fucking scoop of ice cream you put it in the bowl, and and I and then I, and then like another twenty minutes later, because I'm in, I'm going just be calm, man, just be calm. The ice cream will come. The ice cream will come. And then uh, twenty minutes later, I call up again. I'm like. What's going on with the ice cream? And they're like, they are, they're on their way up. I'm like, you said that 20 minutes ago. <laughs> right? And then now it's been like an hour and 15 minutes. And I call them. I'm like, forget the ice cream. Forget the ice cream. And yeah. so, no worse. Get in bed, fall asleep 20 minutes later <laughs> oh, with the do not disturb sign on the door. They're like banging on the door. Sorry, I have your ice cream. And I, I'm screaming from the bed. I canceled it. I canceled the ice cream. <laughs> this guy's getting this fucking ice cream. He's yeah. getting this fucking. You're gonna feed him exactly. this yeah. ice cream. I like the idea that he wouldn't stop to just pounding on the Mr. Peeking out of there. Jesus. And now for me, I, love I get recognized it. by like like if I go to Disneyland, there's probably what there's fifty thousand people in the park. I'll get recognized four times. Mm-hmm. So I'm about a four out of 50,000 people celebrity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so there's a 1. part 1.4 million Twitter followers, yeah. There's a part of me, yeah, it's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, there's a part of me that's like, they don't recognize me so I can fucking be a real person and be a dick right now. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're Tom Hanks, that becomes how they define you. For the rest of time, He's the I, the guy who's bitching about his ice cream and crying in his room about it. And I think that's what people like Amy have to deal with. Like, oh, no, I have to interact with the world in that way. And I think Amy loves walking around New York. She doesn't want to, like, think about that it matters. And I think that's the true for Michael Sarah and Carell and But with Amy, Sandler with, with Amy it's worse. Who's, and Amy's great. And, and, uh, and that her – her sh- Inside Amy Schumer has some of the best sketches in the annals of sketch oh, yeah. comedy. Absolutely. And she uh, – but the one thing that male comics never have to deal with is uh, talking about your body and talking yeah. about what you're wearing. Yeah. It's like can you not just – some yeah. <laughs> some, guy twe- some guy tweeted at me a couple days ago and it actually kind of stung a little bit. He goes, watching at midnight, haven't laughed one time, but I'll totally fuck you, Chris Hardwick. And I kind of felt like – Oh, hey, that kind of feels weird. Like, it, you know, <laughs> and then knowing, you know, like my friend April Richardson, she's like, that's what the, that's what her her yeah. comedy existence is like. Most yeah. of the time, is do is fucking dudes going like, yeah. yeah, you're pretty funny, but I totally fuck you. Like, um, hey, maybe don't say that to another human yeah. being. I think Mark Barron had a great uh, speech about that, where he just talked about just he had a great term for it. It was like hate nerds or something. Oh, yeah. And, and it is true. I think the sad part is I think that's a very small percentage of uh, a very small, loud percentage. They're just vote loud. Of, of, of creepy people who are just doing that 
very often. Just a couple ruin it for everyone. He's not writing one message to Amy. That's his evening. Yeah. Right. He's doing it to everyone. It's a way of communicating <laughs> that really Flipping hurts. Through a Rolodex. Who yeah. is it tonight? Yeah. And uh, and yeah. getting and it, it's it's sad. And they also when you connect to them, they don't think that anyone reads it. Right. So yeah. when you respond, uh, you know, if somebody is just like, Judd, your fucking movies suck and whatever. If I like tweet back to them, like privately and just go dude that's a little rough I'm just trying to make people laugh they always say like oh man i'm your biggest fan yeah <laughs> like yeah. It, it leaps to that instantly and yeah. i think they really don't think anyone. i bought tickets for you in anaheim yeah. oh what yeah. you're doing yeah, yeah. <laughs> no one thinks that anyone reads that stuff so they don't actually i think most of the time don't think that they're hurting anyone's feelings every once in a while though they'll double down yeah, that's and true. Like, you go, hey, man, I'm just a human being. <laughs> no, you're not. You're worse. <laughs> I'm pretty bad, too, because I will like go through every tweet a, a guy has tweeted in the last five years <laughs> and find three that should lose him all his friends <laughs> and, and retweet it to my army of 1.4. Yeah. <laughs> of which I think now, like I always feel like no one's on Twitter anymore. I, I really feel like... Out of that 1.4 million, there's about 2,000 active people. I, I, it does really – you could feel the volume going down and you could feel – especially with comedians. It used to be that all the comedians were on Twitter and they were really funny. And then just over the last two years, they've all said, I'm not giving this shit away for free. Yeah. Uh, well, and I think a lot of it too is that uh, you know, uh, by and large, I, you know, comedy is a sword and not everyone knows how to wield it. And so sometimes I think – Besides just basic trollery, there are people who see comics and go, oh, I can be funny too. And they'll like take a swipe at the comic, not realizing that comedians, in order to do yeah. what we do, are sensitive. Yeah, yeah. And so to tell a comic like, hey, just don't take any of that personally. Don't be sensitive. Like, yeah, but that's – and we're also yeah, – That's why I'm a comedian. That yeah. we're also conditioned <laughs> yeah. to deal with hecklers. Yeah, yeah. And so – I've seen the response, I guess you've never heard of sarcasm, so many uh, times. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. And so I think, so I think a lot of comedians just fucking quit because they're like, this is too emotionally draining. Exactly, yeah. And uh, I'm a comedian to get approval. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but also, it I also makes... I the choir. Who are you guys? You know what social media makes me realize is that you, you, you really do see that comedy was not meant... F- like. Every piece of comedy was not meant for everyone. Comedy sure. is very situational yeah. and it's very it's very communal and it's meant for an intimate group. Yeah. And so when jokes start getting pulled apart and dissected and like you know yeah. at, t- taken out of context, yeah. So other people can go, "What the fuck was it?" Like you weren't even there, and you're mad about a thing that you don't even yeah. know what it refers to. Yeah. yeah, that's why I think what is really impressive about what Amy Schumer has done and Lena Dunham has done in the face of it is. They have been able to handle the fact that there's this small minority of really awful, toxic people. And their work has gotten stronger and stronger. They're getting funnier and smarter and going deeper. And that's really hard. I mean, Lena, you know, the, the, you know, the people who like, are trying to like, get under her skin have just failed. Yeah, you know that show just gets better and better. This season was really incredible. Probably the best season of the yeah. show. I love the show. It's insane how it's. But this season was like far, by and large the best. Season. She's really nice. I, I met her at the yeah. Emmys a couple of years ago. I met she and Jack were there, yeah. and uh, she was so fucking nice. And yeah. I didn't expect her to be. I didn't just didn't. I haven't any expectations. Yeah. And 
she was very complimentary and really sweet, and and it kind of yeah. made me want to hang out with her more. No, she's really, really nice and really smart and open and collaborative, and I think Amy's that way too. I think those writers love her. They're having a great time doing the show. I saw some clips from the show. It seems like it's just getting stronger, as if it's even possible to get better because yeah. it's so, so good. And I, I think that you know when there's something to, I mean, the main thing to be inspired by. Uh, in terms of, of them is just their honesty and their strength and they're not losing any touch w- uh, with their creativity. You know, they're just really finding uh, interesting, important things to talk about. And it is so hard. I mean, uh, I love Chappelle. I, I, I don't know if anyone's funnier than Chappelle, but he stopped. You know, he was like, this is uncomfortable. And part of that is dealing with the audience, dealing with the expectations of the audience, yeah. dealing with your own ego, dealing with what your expectations are for yourself or for the audience. And he's like, nah. Well, and that, and that was, you know, arguably the best sketch show ever made. But it can take yeah. you, it can take a comedian 10 to 20 years of working nonstop to kind of, for something to pop. Yeah. And it can take that long. Sure. As you know. And so I think the thing that kind of can throw comedians is that for the longest time, no one's really scrutinizing everything that they're saying yeah. because they're just performing yeah. for audiences and people are laughing and they're that. Yeah. And so they're learning how to do their thing. And yeah. then all of a sudden, a lot of people care and there's a yeah. lot of scrutiny. And and that pressure is sure. got to not be I fun. Don't know how, I don't know how people do it. And I you know and I also I'm fine with like anybody who's like okay enough I'm gonna do this instead. You know when Louis's like all right we're done with Louis. It's like all right that was his clock. You know for Chappelle whatever it was he's like. That was enough. I'm not enjoying this. I'd rather do stand-up than feel like I'm in this type of communication with the audience. Uh, But when people can really do it year after year after year, like Key and Peele, and it gets better and better, it really is astounding. It's it's very difficult to keep up the quality and have uh, new ideas and to not give a fuck about the crowd and just go, I got things to say. I hope you're along for the ride, but... If you're not, you know, there's there's other things to watch. But also yeah. the pressure of, um, you know, oh, uh, you're getting a lot of fringe when you get to the when, – when your fame – I think my manager has this really great phrase. He's like, you never want to be more famous than funny. <laughs> because I think that's right. Because yeah. then you start getting a lot of fringe people who come to the shows, which is nice because, you know, they buy tickets and they're there to see. But the second – the person that they're expecting to be the funniest person in the world, like, throw something out there that doesn't land. Oh, this person isn't fucking funny. It's like yeah. the audience is almost a little more defensive. Like, yeah. I thought they're supposed to be the funniest. Or worse, they're clipping, like, one joke that doesn't work and putting it on the internet. Yeah. And it just, like, the whole thing. It's just a weird time for that. Well, also, um, you know, when people think you represent something, if they think, oh, Dave Chappelle's supposed to represent black people. In the culture, he's supposed to say important things. He's supposed to be our voice. Lena Dunham and Amy Schumer are supposed to be the voice of women and feminism. I, I don't know how people do that. I don't I don't think I necessarily could do that. I really don't. I mean, I, when we did 13 episodes of The Stiller Show, I mean, by episode 10, I'm in my office praying for cancellation. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm so tired. I'm so exhausted. I, I mean... To you know, to keep your energy up and your point of view and collaborate is really hard, and and we had no expectation of representing anybody. Just 
more Jews. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, when you're when you're Key and Peel, and people are really looking to you to say things, and uh, in the culture, that's just another thing that makes it more difficult. When you're in a room with writers going, you know, what's the point of this joke? Even John Stewart, seventeen years every day, waking up thinking, I need to come up with my point of view on this political issue yeah. and then find out how to make it hilarious and to succeed for 17 years, uh, I, I mean, that might be the most Herculean feat Especially because, you know, the stories that I've heard of John, and I don't really know John very well, but the stories that I've heard of him would be, you know, he would get all, he would get the, he'd be in the writer's room, he'd be in his own office, and then right before the show, he'd rewrite a lot of it. Yeah. Like, every fucking day. Yeah. Every day, and that show, even though there were correspondence, was largely a monologue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, sure. I mean, that is. A... I mean, Samantha B. Have you watched this Samantha B. show? Oh, good. She's amazing. Full frontal. I, I mean, it, it's it's astounding. It is yeah. astounding how funny she is, and she goes at everybody so hard, and her character completely works to be. A political correspondent at this moment, you know, it's like it's literally the perfect character to point out the madness, just how hilarious she is and how rough she is. It's. It, I was watching it last night. Just I was just going through my phone and just looking at links to just pieces that she had put up, and everyone was so funny. She had this John Kasich uh, talking to Hasidic Jews. What? <laughs> <laughs> Where he's like explaining the Bible to them oh, as, if, oh, oh, oh. as if they haven't read it. Yeah, I, 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 it was as funny as anything ever. And then um, I forgot. I forgot. He just used his grammar in a funny way, which reminded me of when Hank Kingsley was asking Scott Thompson if he was a gay. <laughs> <laughs> he said something like that. <laughs> that reminds me of an old Margaret Cho joke where her mom was like. Oh, your friend Scott, is he the gay? Yeah. Well, I don't know, Mom. I don't know if he's the gay. There's like the parade, just one guy carrying a flag. I don't know if he is the, I don't know if we can call him the gay. Uh, do you, so do you consider, do you see yourself like taking time off of film to tour for a while or mm-hmm. do you just, are you juggling both? It all depends on how San Diego goes through. This is it. This is one show. You know, if, do or die. If San it's Diego, all riding on this. If it doesn't rock hard Thursday. But I think calling it, I, I think having it, you know, your name with friends yes. is good because people know that your friends yeah. are very funny people sure. as well. So that's so people, even if they don't know exactly who's going to be on every show, mm-hmm. yeah. they get to see you and then they know like, oh, and I'll bring people that I promise yes. you will be funny. And I think uh, that's what I'm, I'm doing it for, which, which is not really to go out alone and do stand-up. I'm really in it just for the camaraderie of doing it. Yeah. I, I, I enjoy uh, doing the shows with, with most anybody because I'm, I come at it as a comedy fan you know I, I make movies and, and do uh, stand up just to be a part of the comedy world I almost have to be good at it to get my key to the city <laughs> <laughs> and that is really a, on some deep level what it is I have to train myself to to care and to have craft and have things to talk about but it's at its deepest level it's like you better make a good movie so that the good people want to collaborate with you right uh, and it's the same with stand up to do stand up I think, damn, I gotta be funny so that, like, when, you know, Ray Romano and Louie walk into the comedy cellar, I'm not the shitty comic. (laughs) 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 I don't wanna be the thing where they're like, why is he here? You know, so those are the great moments. Have you had one of, have you had one of those moments where one of those guys has walked in and you had an okay set and then you have to talk to them afterwards? Um, 
I'm trying to think. I mean, for the most part, the only person that ever threw me uh, was Mark Marin in the crowd because I'm I'm really close. Well, he's very open and not. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 yeah, very. No, I'm very I'm very close with Mark. I I really love him. I'm a big fan of his show. I'm a giant fan of his stand up and and all of it. But for some reason, when I first started doing stand up, and I was about three months in after not doing it for 22 years, it didn't make me nervous when Chris Rock walked in the room or Louie or Ray Romano Dice Clay was watching me one night from the back. <laughs> that didn't throw me for some reason. Mark Merritt at the back of the room was the only night I thought, I am doing 40% worse because Mark Marin is in the back of the room. Uh, and then he was at the Comedy Store the other night and we, we happened to be at the Comedy Store a lot lately following each other. And he was in the room. It was the first time where I went, like, I think I was still myself uh, <laughs> on stage because uh, I don't know what it represents. But I think probably, it has, you know, it has nothing to do with Mark at all. But it just re- represents don't be a fucking imposter. Right. You're not yeah. there as some guy who's just dicking around. Yeah, Mark is definitely an authenticity mirror. Yeah, and yeah. so I just thought, you got to be real and go deep and, and be smart and be committed to this because it's, uh, you know, there's no other way to do it. So it's more, I, I project that onto Mark because I respect him, I think. 2002 at the Improv, I think it was 2002 at the Improv. Uh, I had a similar experience and I did not have a good set and it haunted me for months. It was uh, Shanling and um, Greg Kinnear, I think, were... Oh, I think yeah. it was around that time. I think yeah. I feel like they had done something together or something. But uh, what planet are you from? Maybe, maybe, maybe that's what it was. Mm-hmm. But they were just in the back of the improv, yeah, and I was rough. a much newer comic, and it just it threw. I couldn't. Yeah. you know, the best is when someone you respect likes you. When I was first starting out, I used to host at the improv uh, every night of the week, just about. From eight o'clock till one thirty in the morning. The Melrose Improv. The Melrose Improv, and the, there was one in San, San Santa Monica, Monica too. Yeah. And uh, and I was just starting, and so I'm like twenty one, twenty two years old. And uh, I remember doing this bit, which was my letter to my starving child. And it was, <laughs> it, was a, it was a stupid bit, but it was just me reading a letter and saying, I don't really know what to say. It's hard to relate, and it's all like. <laughs> Dear Miguel, how are you? How are, things, how are things in your village? Is the drought over yet? And then I talk about Thanksgiving and all the food we threw in the garbage. And it's, uh, it, that was the basic tenor of it. Um, and, uh, and I did it. And then I brought Seinfeld up. <laughs> and, 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 uh, and there wasn't many people in the crowd. It really was like a third of the crowd was there. And Seinfeld just went, that was funny. <laughs> and I rode that for two years. Yeah. I mean, for two years, that got me through a lot of bad nights just going, okay, Seinfeld likes that bit. Yeah. I'm, I've got a toehold somewhere. Uh, it, what, my career, what's that for you? What, what's the one person? Oh, for me? That, yeah. One person for me that, that I would want? or That, that said that, something to you that had early big impact? Um. I think around 2001, maybe Drew Carey used to do yeah, these yeah. improv jams mm. on Thursday nights at the yeah. improv. And uh, so the rooms were always packed. Yeah. And it was just, I, I just, uh, I, it was just an extra good set. Like I was yeah. super connected to the crowd. And then afterwards, he came in and was like, hey, man, that was really funny. Yeah. And that, he was kind of the first, uh, one of the first famous comics. Um, the other one would have been Louis Anderson in the nineties, sure. like in the late nineties. Yeah, yeah. I just worked with Louis the other night at Largo. Oh man, he's he, fucking. He, he he's, was so he's so funny. great. And Baskets is 
so great. Such a good show. It's somewhat stunning. It's so funny. Uh, I haven't seen Baskets yet because I've it's great. You'll love it. I have a lot of work. It, it literally is one of those things. I, I haven't even watched the whole season. I, I'm I'm just savoring it because I'm like I can't believe this exists. Yeah. <laughs> this is so good, and I heard they're all good, they're all and good. I'm just slowly consuming it. It, it. it walks an amazing balance of something real at, but also absurd. It's a funny joke style, but exactly. yet it's, emo- it's emotional. It yeah. really is. Slapstick. It's like, nailing everything in a way that no one can. I mean, there's yeah. been nothing like it. I mean, we are at a pretty amazing time where, you know, if you remember Late World with Zach, the, mm. uh, was it the VH1? Mm. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. right when I moved You know, it's like that, that, was, yeah. that, was in a, that was in a pre, let's call it, uh, niche cable programming era sure. where they were trying to force people like Zach into a, uh, Let's try to make you this thing that's broad, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now, I love that we're in a time where it's like, nah, just make the thing that's just you. Is it doesn't matter if it's super yeah, weird yeah. or whatever. Just yeah. do, just make your thing. I, I went on YouTube not that long ago, maybe like two weeks ago, and just watched old uh, episodes of that show of Zach's oh, yeah. talk show. Oh, really? Uh, I, and I could not have enjoyed it more. I'm like, yeah. wait a second, I get to sit here and rewatch this show. <laughs> I remember it, it the is really experimental. John Mayer bit being hilarious that he did with John Mayer. It's really amazing. It. Right behind. There's some more water. I need more water. Do you have any? Um, this weird thing has happened on the podcast in the last year where people come on and casually mention something, and then all of a sudden it's a news story. Mm-hmm. Do you have any news breaking? <laughs> you want me to boy, say something? Oh boy. Well, because I'm Chris, kind of getting addicted to it your now. Your delivery really? on this. Um, I think you could have dug a little what if, deeper. What if maybe I say not something uh, surface question like controversial? That. Great. Okay. Yeah. Really like right. controversial or I don't know. Great. You want to talk about Black Lives Matter for about a half an hour well, and we, see if I slip up? Well, <laughs> only, only a half an hour. Only a half an hour. That's all you'll give me. Hang on, hang on. We blue lives matter here, Judd. I was thinking more along the lines of I almost wrote a sequel to uh, another oh. Fletch movie or something. But you know, if you want to go the controversial route, you certainly can. Uh, I like to talk about North Korean missile testing. Yeah. <laughs> Where could that go wrong? Yeah, it's like you know, he's just workshopping. He's yeah. workshopping. You you yeah. take the missiles to an open mic. You let it workshop. You work out the kinks. Uh, well, you know, I remember like Seth Rogen called me and he's like, they don't want me to use the real leader's name in the movie. <laughs> and uh, they want me to make it a fictional country. And I was like, fuck them. Yeah. Cool. It's already been in South Park and on 30 Rock. What, you can't make fun of North Korea? What do they care? They don't even have the internet. <laughs> That's from the annals of bad advice. Sorry, Judd Apatow. I say go farther. Go. Judd Apatow says go farther. But that movie is so great and it's so hilarious. I went to one of the tests of it, and it just tore the house down. It was it was so funny. And I remember the head of the studio walked in, and as she walked in, she kind of stumbled and dropped her glasses because she literally was like shaking a little bit. From how hard it killed, like it, it surprised her so much, and it is a drag that it turned into all of that uh, controversy. Because what they did is, you know, is amazing. They said, "Oh, by the way, there's this country on the other side of the world that's murdering everybody, <laughs> and we should mock them because shouldn't we give a shit a little bit about this?" And it was a great satire and really, really funny, but did have, you know, hidden within it tons of important. 
things that people should think about in terms of uh, the suffering of other people. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. I was just impressed by their their work there. Well, it's uh, yeah. Comedy is not just comedy anymore. Yeah. It really there was a time where comedy was just comedy, mm-hmm. and it was sort of separate from everything. But now it's so tied with with culture and social issues, and yeah. people get and you know inside every joke is a seed of something that is probably offensive to someone on the planet yeah, well, because it's a it's a defense mechanism we're dealing with tragedy sure. and it has to be i mean if, if well if duck soup accelerated bug. world war ii yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when, Take harpo, that, when harpo put out the help wanted sign <laughs> <laughs> oh my god it's all going south but from here i remember watching that you know the Marx Brothers. I was obsessed with the Marx Brothers as yeah. a kid. And that was, that, you know, those are the people that rocked my world and made me interested in comedy. And I always think, well, what were you thinking when you were eight watching Duck Soup? But it does program your brain to say authority is bullshit, rich people are bullshit, good-looking <laughs> people are bullshit. All these uh, systems and social norms should be mocked and. And I think that's what attracted me to it, which led to George Carlin and Lenny Bruce. Mm-hmm. But but it all starts with the yeah. Marx Brothers because it's subtle. It's just, oh, these are the poor guys, and the guys in the tuxedos are punching them in the face. Yeah. So can I ask you a question? Can I ask you kind of a serious question about that? Yeah. So that's ingrained in your brain, like mm-hmm. must, must subvert authority. Comedy subverts authority. Ostensibly, you are now a rich guy in a tuxedo. Yes, that's true. So, how do you? Right now, people can't see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah Judd wore a tuxedo. Exactly. We're all it's a very nice tuxedo. <laughs> Tails. Uh, so, just wanna, Chris is asking this question for a friend, not him. No, shut up, Matt. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> you just fuck yourself right in the face and don't stop. Yeah. It's hard to be the man. Stop yeah. it. <laughs> I am down with the kids. <laughs> we don't say that anymore, what? Chris. You're fly. We don't say no. We don't say that either. Stop it. We don't say fly down, kids. Boy, that's some fresh hand gestures you're dropping down yeah. right now. Kids what? is a construct that you put upon us. Go Oh, hey man, just give me your grass and chill out, boss. All right, that's come back around. We use those okay, terms good. again. I appreciate yeah. that. So, <laughs> I just it's all cyclical. Yeah, yeah G. Um, so I just don't know. Like, how do you? How do you? I mean, not, not I. <laughs> Chris, stop saying those things. He's like, uh, he's like, he's like Durst in the bathroom. I kill them all, of course. Why would you just leave your bank statement? Judd, how do you when things are going well? How do you handle your my money, your money? How do you keep your? I mean, my soul. Uh, Mr. Abitale, there's uh, video footage of Chris Hardwick outside your apartment with a backpack for some reason. Do you have any idea what this is? <laughs> well, it is. Here's the thing that I find funny: it's, I, is that you know when I was a kid, no one was into comedy at all. There was nobody into comedy. It, like when I would watch Monty Python, there was no one to talk to about it. Yeah. There wasn't even another nerd to talk about it with. And so I was into it no matter what. It just turned into this thing that they pay you well for. Right. I, it wasn't you know the goal in any way, and so it's it's a weird thing. It's like, it's like computer nerds. 
they didn't think they were going to make billions of dollars. They just liked to tinker and, and uh, sneak into phone boxes and get free long distance. Or yeah. However, they, they started like we could have been interested in playing the spoons and been committed and never made a dollar the rest of our lives. But still would play the spoons. Would have loved our spoons. It's just our spoons turned into something that you get paid for. So for me, it's always the same. It doesn't really matter how much or how little you get paid because the desire to do it is not connected to that. Right. It's nice that I get paid, but I also feel like every time you do anything funny, it's an experiment. And the fact that you've succeeded does not mean anything to the fact about whether or not the new thing will succeed. So you're always starting from scratch with every joke and every movie. And that's why you can, I think you can really tell a lot about who people are, not so much on the way up, but once they become successful. Yeah. Once once people come to then you see like, oh, what do you really care about? Because yeah. now those resources are not an issue. So if you still do comedy, yeah. if you still try new things, that's who you are. If you kind of just let it all go, yeah. then it, that's like if you're Woody Allen, you'll always have a hot young girl in every movie, yeah. no matter what. Yeah. You'll yeah. stick to your original intention <laughs> and make a TV series with Miley Cyrus. <laughs> 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 because he, he's holding on. He's holding on. Wrote a uh, exactly. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that that's, you know, the, the fun part about it is that in your soul, it's not connected to that. And I think one of the smartest things that I, I did mentally to not uh, get in my head and censor myself was when Freezing Geeks was over, I thought to myself, everything else is icing after this. Like, I've accomplished the thing that I had hoped to accomplish. And Paul and I loved the show, and it was everything we dreamed it would be. Even with its failure, creatively, it always felt like, wow, we got to say it. And after that, I thought, nothing else matters. This is all like, this, this is the aftermath. And, and as opposed to, you know, they say when people win Oscars, they tend to be less productive because they get in their head. And they start thinking that everything's important. And the people who are like obsessing on things being important slow down. Yeah. Like, oh, what, but what if they don't like this? I shouldn't make it because it may not be as great as this. And then you're dead. And yeah. so I just thought, oh, I'm, my career's kind of over. And that was in the year kind of freeing. That was the year 2000. I thought, oh, it's over. Oh, I, I, I got to do my rubber soul. <laughs> I'm happy to do uh, wings for the rest of my life. <laughs> you know, and if, and if out of the blue, you know, I do, uh, you know, I, I I hit, you know, some groove. I hit it, but I kind of don't care anymore. And that made me experiment uh, enough to do the other things. Um, and I still think that, like, I can go watch a Freaks and Geeks episode and and just go like, oh, you, that was it. You're you kind of. You're done. And with stand-up, I felt the same way about doing the HBO Young Comedian special in 1992. I remember. That was the only goal I had in Janine, comedy. Janine, Kindler, yeah. I remember it. I didn't have a goal to do an hour. I didn't have a goal to do the Tonight Show. For some reason, it was the HBO Young Comedian special. Oh, wow. And so I don't have any goal, which frees me up to just be creative because I, I don't really – I'm not trying to attain anything. Well, if you if you were a comedy fan in the 80s, those Dangerfield – the original Dangerfield specials were really the pinnacle of like these – Six, seven people yeah. are the voices in comedy that are about to break. Yeah. And, uh, and so they were like, I mean, that, that ninth annual Young Comedian special that had like Louie and sure. Saget and Rita Rudner yeah. and Bob Nelson and all these really fucking yeah. great and Regis Philbin was on it and, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and Dangerfield hosted. I mean, it was like. I was watching the 1995 
HBO Young Comedian Special, and it was Shanley hosting, and it was Louis C.K. and Dave Chappelle. And uh, I forgot who all the others were. Was that at the Aspen? I think that might have been at Aspen, right? Yeah, yeah I think it was. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, that was always the one. I think Attell might have been on that one. Yes, Attell was on that one. That was a pretty amazing special. Yeah. So, yeah, you have those goals, and then you just think, what do I want to talk about? But you do get older. I mean, This Is 40 is about what it's like to be a domesticated person and realizing that you still have a lot of emotional stuff to work <laughs> out. <laughs> but it doesn't really matter. You still have to have your stuff to work out. No. Well, our generation was allowed to have this very extended adolescence that our mm. parents' generation didn't really have. And I think we saw them as like, oh, oh, 40, you're do- almost done. Yes. And you have all the answers. And then yeah. we hit 40 and we're like, oh, man, I'm not done. I'm not yeah, done. I'm, and I, I don't know anything. Yeah. I'm basically still 26. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the thing you notice when you get older is that everyone's still an idiot. Yeah. You used to think, oh, the older people, they, they know things, but they really don't, or they're worse. <laughs> <laughs> I have not met wise people as I get older. Like, there's, there's some wisdom. They I just mean, said yeah. things authoritatively, <laughs> yes. which gave the illusion yeah, that they mo- knew. Like, like now that I'm, you know, I'm 48 and I see all the parents, it makes you think about your childhood and you think, oh, everyone's parents – they were all idiots. Yeah. yeah. And we were all scared of them. And we thought, you know, they were in control and they knew things. But now I'm friends with those people now and they are not impressive. <laughs> <laughs> they don't know anything. <laughs> These are stupid. Yeah. Are you, uh, so you said Gary's Memorial this weekend? Yes. We're, there's a memorial for Gary. And so um, I've been editing video pieces for the memorial, just montages of his best jokes. And, and, and I hunted down. Basically, his entire career is in my office, and it's amazing. I mean, how you you forget how many times he did the Tonight Show, and how many jokes that is, and how many of the best jokes of all time, jokes that you think of as generic jokes, he wrote. Like he wrote, "I have a mirror above my bed with a sign on it that says objects in mirror may be larger than they appear." <laughs> You know what I mean? He wrote that. But in his notebook, he has joke joke journals. He had next to it, it said, and this is a joke he didn't do, I have a mirror above my bed and below my bed, so it looks like I'm doing it with 160 people. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, and he has these journals of just jokes, thousands of jokes from like 77 to Do you have the journals? Yeah. Oh, my God. Are you going to put together a book? I'd like to. I, I think that there's amazing stuff in there, just him talking about comedy and trying to figure out how to do it and what it is. There's a page in a journal where he's just talking about hecklers and how to handle them. Like he's just trying to figure it out for himself by writing about it. Like you, know, you, you need to you know, do your retort, but not to the heckler. You do it to the crowd, and then you have to apply what you're talking about on stage to the heckler while not talking directly to the heckler. And he had a whole theory like a about... a spell book. Yeah, yeah, exactly. How to stay in flow. He's the worst thing you could do is spend five minutes talking to this person. You want to you know, relate your material to them without, without saying something that they need to respond to. Oh, I've already fucked that up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I already... Don't do that. God damn it. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it, it, is that... Has that part... I mean, I'm sure it's been awful. Yeah, terrible. But... Is, is, is that part of it comforting in any way to be able to see that depth of contribution and get to live yeah. th- through that? I, I think of it as a, 
you know, Gary was a Buddhist and uh, really believed in trying to get rid of your ego and non-attachment, and and his his uh, writings are all about that. You know, it's about let go and and being in the moment. And as a comedian, he wrote about it. Like the most important thing you can do is to not be self-conscious. And and there's one page where he wrote stage fright, and basically what he said was, uh, and I'm paraphrasing. Uh, there's no reason to be afraid on stage because your goal on stage is to be Gary Shandling. And even if you're nervous, you are Gary Shandling, so you've already attained your goal. Oh, my God. So just be Gary Shandling. That's all you can do. So why do you even have to think about it? Because you, you are Gary Shandling. <laughs> and, he, and, and, and he also writes about enjoying the audience. and love, You have to love the audience. And it's not ultimately about the jokes. It's about your chemistry with these people. And... Every show should be completely different because it's all about the chemistry with these people, and you need to love them and, and see your performance as a, as like a, you know, as a relationship with them and a and a and a and a gift to them, and you're grateful for them. And if you watch all these Tonight shows, and he kills on all of them, he just looks like he's having the best time. He's actually enjoying it. He is very present. He's not in his head yeah. out there. He's he's Smile. ready to the go. The thing that's brilliant about that first thing, uh, before. The form of the relationship with the audience is is great, but the thing about just be Gary Shandling, I think for any performer or anyone, the nugget to extract from that is it sounds like the the success <coughs> matrix in your head, where I think a lot of people go on stage and they go, I'm not going to be successful unless everyone is laughing, and so you can't always control that, yeah. but you can control who you are, yeah. and if that is your goal, I just need to be me in this moment, and whatever else yeah. happens is icing or whatever... That is a slightly different philosophical approach, which I would imagine would make your success matrix go up. You're more comfortable. Sure. You're more in the moment. You're dealing better with yeah. the audience. That's a genius. I never had thought about it that yeah. way before. And he had a note in one of his journals that just said, idea for a book, uh, you know, the Gary Shandling journals. So he had an idea of trying to share this with people at some point. But it really is all about... It's not going to work if I'm not in the moment, and it's not going to work if I don't clear my head enough to let my cre- creativity come out. Because when you're in your head, it's just a block to creativity. And he, he talks about doing the perfect performance and non-performance. Like you're looking for this middle space. It's almost like Zen Buddhism, like walking the middle path, you know, like like law of least effort, and that it will come. And he he's trusting it will come and if you watch him with Carson when he's talking to Carson in these tapes he looks very comfortable and when Carson like throws him for a loop he's right there and he's so funny and everything about his uh, preparation was I know I'm going to be funny when that moment comes you know he had trained himself to believe that and as a result he is so it's uh, it's fascinating and I think he shared that type of philosophy with so many comedians and writers I mean he saw me perform you know, a few months ago, and he said, Judd, you know, you're just, it's so good, and uh, the only time it's not working is when you act like a comedian. <laughs> and it, it was life-changing. I mean, really, it changed, and I understood exactly what it meant, and it changes everything. It's like the one note that will affect everything, it just ripples through everything you're writing and doing and performing. Do you think that means to sacrifice the authenticity of a moment to try to get a joke in or a laugh or something? Is that what that means? I think it means like we, we're all trained to know how comedians act and their rhythms and I'm being a comedian and I'm hitting right, certain right, right. things yeah. as opposed to trying to go deeper into your own natural way of communicating and just being yourself. 
Which is a very scary thing because yeah. you never think of your you never think of yourself as like, oh, well, that's not funny. That's just me. I just not, who gives Except, a shit about that? Yeah. If you hate yourself, it's hard to do. Yeah. Which is why I stopped doing stand-up when I stopped when I was 25. I just thought, on some unconscious level, who wants to hear me talk? Like, I'm watching Jim Carrey perform every night. I know why they want to watch him talk. Yeah. But I don't, I don't have enough self-esteem to think a room is delighted to see me. And it took me a long time to think, as a writer... Oh, what I have to say is interesting to people. I mean, it took till Forty Old Virgin and Knocked Up, and it started with Freaks and Geeks, and, and especially when I did this scene in Freaks and Geeks, um, which I wrote and directed, where Bill watches Gary Shandling on the Dinosaur Show, <laughs> and when that was over, Jake Kazan said, "Oh, that's the best thing you've ever done, and that's the most personal thing you've ever done," and it just clicked in, like, "Oh, so that's the secret. I have to believe that the audience cares about my deepest stuff." If I don't believe it, I can't do any of this. I have to believe that that's the way to do this. Well, because even if the audience doesn't exactly know mm-hmm. the reference or they don't know, people do. People can read if you care about something or not. Sure. And sure. the more you care about something, chances are people are going to connect with that, even if they don't. Even if they're like, "What's the dinosaur show?" Like they'll still get the yeah. moment because it's meaningful. Well, Gary said it on the comedians in cars uh, show. He said, "You know, the the, the audience." Uh, expects you to take them on a trip. Actually, I think he maybe he said that on a, on a Charlie Rose. I've been watching a lot of his stuff, so I'm confused. But he said, yeah, they expect you, you to take them somewhere. Like, you're the, you're the leader of the group. And you have to be in a certain headspace to feel like you can do that. And, you know, the great people that we watch today in whatever form, whether it's, you know, Amy or Hannibal Burris or whoever, they're doing that, you know. Yeah. What is a is there one kind of final thing that's important for you to people know that people know about Gary or is there just something that you wish like oh I wish more people knew this or to take away yeah. or if the people aren't as familiar with Gary like what's what's something that you think Well I, I mean there were a couple of things have come up as I've just watched everything and heard him speak and listened to all these interviews I feel like the Larry Sanders show really was the statement that he wanted to make about people you know he always said uh, the Larry Sanders show is about people who love each other but show business gets in the way that was his theory of the of the show. And it really was about any office. It's just about ego. Just when you're obsessed with yourself and your ego, you're not connecting with other people. And so the show was the worst of that. You know, that's what it was. He was mocking the part of himself that wanted approval and wanted to be famous and whatever that is, wanted sex, wanted power, wanted money. And it's like he took the part of himself that he was at war with and he and he eviscerated it and said, look at how stupid we all are. We, we have to not do this by having fun with it. And that was, uh, you know, that was, I think, his, his, his big statement. So when people say, why didn't he do another show? I, I really feel like, I don't know. I think he really, really said the main thing he wanted to say and knew he said it perfectly. He was proud of the show. He had no qualms about any of it. And I think it was probably hard to think, do I have another thing that I'm I'm dying to say as much as that yeah um are you uh speaking at the service i am i'm not i'm concerned about it but i'm i'm i will speak who and- books that <laughs> exactly yeah, yeah yeah uh it's a uh, harry capehart i believe is, uh, is booking that <laughs> out, of, when, out of modesto when you're when you're, when you're pre- john fox is, is booking <laughs> <it>. <laughs> i mean when you're preparing for that 
that's got a lot of different there's a lot of weight in a lot of different directions I would imagine because mm-hmm. obviously you want to be respectful this is very meaningful to you he's one of the most influential people in your life but do you feel any pressure like should I should there be anything funny in this or not anything uh, funny in this or should yeah. it just be just what, sincere what I thought of it was like it, it a, and, I, and I said this somewhere that as soon as Gary died everything that surrounds it is a Larry Sanders show episode it's just a memorial it's a Larry Sanders show episode who speaks for how long who I gotta follow that who, guy who loved him the most <laughs> there, there's like a exactly it's that and uh, and so you know and if you get laughs at a memorial is that an egomaniacal thing to do who's pure you know because you go to memorials and people get up and speak and you go oh it's all about them it's not even about the person that passed away how do you not be that person but is it impossible not to be that person on some level because you're trying to express your connection to them of course and and you're 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 dealing with your emotions about it so i'm trying to think of all that as just funny that gary would find it hilarious like look what they're doing you know, like this is funny. Just the dance around how to pay tribute is like, whatever the roast episode of the Larry Sanders show, <laughs> uh, and uh, and I and I see it all as uh, like Gary's final lesson. Like us looking at Gary's death is the final lesson that he wanted to teach everybody about how to live your life and how to be in the moment, how to be good to people, and even though it sucks to think about that, maybe it makes everybody, uh, you know less egomaniacal and more in tune and more caring, which is all he, he cared about. And even though he was struggling to do it, 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 it was his intention all the time. Well, thank you so much for coming in and doing the podcast uh, for a second time. Yeah. Repeat, repeat business. Twofer. It's a twofer. But you're, you really – having you just sit here and sh- – it's like you, you could be like the fourth person on the show. I'm ready. You could just come in. If you want to just come in, you can sit on any I episode will. you want to. Just send me the list. I'll send you the list. You go, <laughs> that guy, not that person, fuck okay. that person. Yeah, I'll be there. Hardwick, you stay home. I'll just well, you're the, You one. should feel honored. This is the first one Jonah showed up for in a month. Oh, so. It was Excellent. early enough to where I could come before work. It's nice. <laughs> yeah. It is kind of fun watching you balance. I mean, I, you've gone from a guy, Jonah, who – was not great with responsibility to mastering, like really learning how to master. Well, I never had that much stuff. to be responsible uh, responsible for. No, but I mean now it's like it's really it's really impressive. You really thank you. Of, it's, it's really thank good. you. I want to kill myself every time. <laughs> <laughs> you think when you achieve all your dreams, you're like you're like then I can coast, and then no, it's just more sadness. No, well, it's not that. It's just like. You know what? The, you know what it is. It's just like the 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 there's there's that passion moment, that flush of passion when you're pursuing something because that's yes. the, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The unsexy part of the process is maintaining. Main, maintenance is a completely different skill yeah. set that's very hard to learn how to do. How do you keep something fresh when you've been doing it yeah. when there's no brand new sexy moments? Yeah. Where it's like, well, yeah. this is the thing I made. How do I everyone keep the likes buying fresh? a car? No one likes yeah. going to Jiffy Lube. <laughs> they yeah. don't. I love Jiffy Lube. Yeah. A moment that to just was sit. My first therapist said he goes, "It's the red Corvette theory. You want that red Corvette, and you got to take care of the red Corvette. Someone dents it. You're devastated that they scratch your Corvette. <laughs> like, suddenly, it's this pain in the ass. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not. Uh, it breaks down. Like yeah. you're not supposed to break down. Yeah. Come on, <laughs> you're the reason I paid a lot. Of, what are you talking about? Yeah. yeah. So you really do have to, and you really do have to enjoy yeah. a reader. You have to yeah. enjoy the process. Well, I, the best advice I ever got was from Stephen Bochco. Uh, that's all the time we have, Judge. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'll leave you with this. Uh, we were about to start Freaks and Geeks. So I went out to lunch with them with Jake Kasdan, and, and 
And he said, you know, making television is like putting 10 pounds of shit in an eight pound bag. <laughs> you never have enough time. You never have enough money. You never can get it right. You just have to yeah. do it. And it's always a mess. And you do the best you can. And it really was life changing. <laughs> because I'm such a perfectionist and so anal that for someone to just go like, oh, you'll never get it right. And, and But you'll get close, and every once in a while you'll think you did, but it is – there's 10 pounds of shit. <laughs> That's very And two pounds ain't getting in the bag. It's yeah, very there, free. There is, a, there is another story. Uh, I'm not sure if it's real or not, but uh, Jerry Lewis and Stanley Kubrick were in the same uh, post um, – Bay. Like they're at a base where their movies were right next to each other in this facility and they see each other in like the common area of the kitchen and Jerry Lewis goes, uh, well, you can't polish a turd. Uh, and then uh, Cooper responds with, you can if you freeze it. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Does Jerry Lewis tell that story? I don't know. It's like I, it was like what someone said. Like, oh, I heard this story on a you know. It's almost a perfect story. <laughs> yeah. Amazing, yeah. Amazing. All right. Story. Too perfect. In a perfect place to end. Enjoy it. Read everyone. And also, uh, San Diego. San Diego. Go to the Balboa Theater April twenty first to see Judd and Ticketmaster. Ticketmaster. Dimitri Martin. <laughs> Big Daddy Truckhouse. There's a comedy tram jam. Big D Dimitri Martin. The tram jam. Tram jam. Uh, yeah. Tram jam. <laughs> Tram operators get in half It's trams. Come on down to the tram Going over ramps very slowly. And they had the tram jam. Wednesday, Wednesday, Wednesday. It's controlled. They can't afford to get in on a weekend. They're not going to see Tramzilla walk over All right. April. What's Is there a ticket link or where we're going? Ticketmaster. Ticketmaster. Or go to StubHub and buy front row tickets for $8,000. It's like Hamilton. Let's see. You better rap, Sang. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Wondery Kids Plus on Apple Podcasts today.